Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. It's time to reassess COVID. Uh should we say 7 months down the line because in India it started in March, so we'll have to say 4 months down the line and uh who better to do it with uh my favorite per- person to discuss COVID with, uh, Razib Khan. Razib, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's not my <laughs> I I'm, I'm happy to come on. Just favorite person to discuss COVID with. That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> rather we discuss right, other things but you know it's the world we live in yeah but you know you know we do live in this world and we have to face it and honestly I, i'll tell you why why i use that word right so honestly in the last 4 5 months i've read so much material myself i've tried to read your timeline i've tried to read everything that you share on covid and at the end of the day i just don't understand anything i yeah. i i really don't understand anything Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would be the first person to say I'm clueless, and everybody else is scared about COVID. Uh, I'm and and I'm gonna start with this. I'm actually not scared of COVID anymore. But what I'm scared of is, uh, and let me flip. Uh, have this discussion first, and then we can get into the nitty gritties of COVID. In my opinion, the lockdown in India. I still maintain. I supported the lockdown in India in the month of April and in the month of May completely. The way it was like a shutdown, shutdown. But what I have realized is that after the antibodies results have come in Mumbai, Delhi, Pune, Kolkata, and many other major Indian cities, the lockdown has been a disaster. Uh, I, I just don't have any other word to say. It's been a disaster. because uh, when we look at the numbers in mumbai so let me just put them out there for you so there was a zero zero prevalence survey done in mumbai which said 57% of mumbai slums uh, showed antibodies for covid non slums were 16% at that time they've not done a follow up survey or they have done it and the results have not come out till now uh, in delhi they have done two already the, the first one was 22.7% and they did one recently in delhi and and it did not go down it was 30% now in delhi in mm-hmm. pune uh, albeit a very small sample size but uh, it is more than 50% and the slums in pune show 62% mm-hmm. uh, kolkata i think was 20% and above hyderabad it's basically the same story so what scares me and here's the scary part that these high density population developing countries just can't avoid a pandemic and if that is the case what if we get a virus which is as contagious and spreads as fast as covid mm-hmm. and has got a higher mortality rate is it mm-hmm. game over for us yeah well um so let's you know I, i i haven't been sharing too much about covid on my timeline i do every now and then but you know since about june i've probably tuned a lot of it out i check in like once a week the reason is i'm um, here in the united states um i feel like a lot of countries india is probably one of those countries not a lot but a, a fair number there's been kind of a muddle and a lack of clarity of direction and so you know you can do what you can do like if you can quarantine quarantine i've had some friends who've had coronavirus um i mean they're obviously survived but they do not recommend it and we don't know what the long term effects are going to be there will be a point where i think many places will get herd immunity and so to review for the for the the viewers herd immunity is enough people have it and are resistant that the virus is not going to spread anymore because there's not enough people that it can parasitize right um so when you said the seropositivity 
only went up. That's the only way at this point it can go because the seropositive rate won't decline for at least three to six months because the antibodies are going to be in the system that long, right? So they can never get below what we're detecting right now. Um, so, you know, here in the United States, we have multiple outbreaks in different parts of the country. You know, we're a continent-sized country. You guys kind of are too. And so I think that's what you're seeing when you aggregate, you mash it all together as one outbreak that is not, viruses don't really know borders and they don't know, you know, regional distinctions. And so they're just spreading locally, however, and some places they're spreading. Um, so what I would say right now is I have, I'm shocked at how little we know, but we do know a lot, but I'm shocked at how much how little clarity and confidence of what we know. So we know a lot of different things at moderate confidence or even low confidence, but we don't know what like 100% many, many things, which is where I would want to be by the end of the summer. And if you don't know with a really high confidence, it's awkward to make a decision, a policy response, because you could be wrong, in which case, okay, you're wrong, you made the wrong, maybe if you made the worst decision, you don't know, right? So what happened with the lockdowns was we had imperfect information. Um, the lockdowns did not work as well as we were hoping in most countries. It's not true in every everywhere. In some places, they seem to have worked pretty well. I mean, in a lot of Europe, like in Italy, they are having a COVID resurgence, but they were really normal for a couple of months there. The lockdowns did really crush. In the United States, they really didn't. It doesn't seem like in India it did in a lot of places either, right? So. Whether the lockdown works or not has local parameters. You're talking density, other things. In the United States, a lot of it is non-compliance, I suspect. Uh, people just didn't comply. with it. Like If people complied with the social distancing, if they didn't leave their house for two weeks, except for maybe essential truckers or something, we could actually get rid of COVID. The problem is we can't force people to do that. We don't have a totalitarian state anywhere. Even China can't. Oh, China kind of came close to doing that. Um, I do think that there is another parameter and I want to put it out there. I suspect that infections of related coronaviruses mean that some people are exhibiting antibody responses, even if they didn't get COVID-19 itself. Uh, I strongly suspect that in Southeast Asia in particular, where the mortality rate has been low, uh, basically cases have been low and cases are people that are symptomatic. Uh, why have the cases been so low? Why is Thailand getting off scot-free well it's not that it's part of the pangolin zone it's part of the bat zone i strongly suspect thailand vietnam cambodia these countries it's not the climate it's not i mean climate has some effect but not a huge effect i think it's that they were infected earlier with related viruses because that's where this is from i um, mean it could be in india has a little bit of protection in that way um africa has not been really bad badly impacted, although African-Americans have been badly impacted. So to me, that suggests that most of the variation, not all of it, but most of the variation is not through genetic inheritance. There is some of it, it turns out. We do know some instances of genes that make you more susceptible to severe respiratory um, responses to COVID. Unfortunately, one of those genes, and I blogged about this multiple times and I tweeted about it, is very high frequency in India. Um, luckily, I don't have it, but something like 20%, 25% of people in large parts of India carry both copies of the gene. That means that they're like, you know, like twice, twice at, at twice at high risk of having severe respiratory illness, right? Which you don't want to have. So if you get COVID and you have like a really, really bad flu, it's not, if you're asymptomatic, it's a really bad flu. 
Um, it's not a nice one, but uh, that's not great, but you'll recover. But if you have to go to the hospital for severe respiratory distress, that's really bad. Those are the people where you're starting to get, you know, 10%, 15% chance you might die. I don't think anyone really wants to take a 10, 15% chance that you might die, right? So some one of the things we know is the case fatality rate, depending on the area, seems to be in the low percents. So if you are symptomatic and you present as a case, and there's a lot of people that don't, right? Um, there's like about a percent chance you die. A lot of those are older people, people with severe risk um, that are younger, that have like really, really high risks. So I myself am not incredibly stressed out about dying of COVID. I'm stressed out about not being able to work for months. Um, that's happened to friends, you know? Uh, I'm stressed out about spreading it to people, but we know what that risk is. On the other hand, um, in Europe, in places in Europe, uh, people have let, um, this hasn't been written about extensively because I think because of the shame, uh, they've let old people die. They refuse to take them to the hospitals. They've, so how do you die when you have COVID? Um, I think a lot of times it's like organ failure. You kind of, you kind of die of asphyxiation on your own, like fluids in your lungs. It's a miserable way to die. Probably it would be better if they just gave them morphine and put them to sleep. Um, the things that I've read and heard, it's horrible. So, so why am I, why was I an alarmist early on? It's a miserable way to die. And we as a society, as a culture worldwide, I think, don't believe that old people should be left to die in misery. That's mm -hmm. why we did all these things. That was the goal. Because it's still a fact that even though it's not high risk for you or me and a lot of people out there, if you're an older person, if that's your grandmother, that's your mother, that's your, you know, whatever, you know, that's a horrible way to die. And that's millions of people that are going to die in that way in this world right now. So um, this is why we reacted the way we did. We thought we could prevent it. I don't think we've done a good job in a lot of the world. I think some of the world has had benefits um, that other parts of the world have, have does not have. Um, there's evidence that's unpublished that I've read about, heard about from friends, mm -hmm. that people who are, for example, Latin American, have indigenous ancestry from the Americas, might be at higher risk. Uh, we see those areas in the United States being really, really hard hit by COVID-19. Um, they've traditionally been hit by respiratory diseases. Spanish flu hit them really hard. So um, the patterns are erratic. There's all these variables and we don't have them all under control. I feel like we have all this information. We have all this information technology in 2020 and yet we still haven't leveraged it. And, and that's really horrible. Um, I think that that's kind of a problem in India too. Um, I think, you know, permit Raj, res, you know, relics, like there's a lot of stuff where the information should be centralized and distributed and it's not for people to make decisions. Um, so I've been talking for a while. Like, I mean, what, what, what are your questions? I know you have a lot. Um, what are your thoughts? <laughs> so my confusion stems from this fact. So I look at three examples here and this is, again, it stems from the utter confusion in my brain. And I know for sure Pakistan has not locked down after April. They just, yeah. they just gave up. So Pakistan's strategy pretty much is that we'll try to raise money if we want to lock down. Nobody helped them. They're like, you know what? Screw it. Just open the country. Uh, social Darwinism it is. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, I talk to friends in Pakistan like who are living in Pakistan right now. I, yes. I, I spoke to a few of them, some yeah. journalists, and they tell me it's not that bad. Yeah. Pakistan is actually fine. And I just 
Bangladesh, I'm not aware of, so I'm not in touch. But uh, if I look at the Voldemort's data for Bangladesh, I know the data is flawed. So uh, yeah. um, before somebody says that, oh, these are not real figures, I get it. But the point is that it's not ravaged th- that country either. And it's not like Bangladesh yeah. is under any lockdown. Yeah, but the issue with Bangladesh and Pakistan is they're actually just a region of, I mean, you could just think of them as regions of India. So there are regions of India that haven't been hit either. Right. I mean, not hard. So I think the way that you need to think about it is like if this is like going to be regional and it's going to flare up locally and then flare down, it's not surprising when small countries are not being hit, you know, because, well, I mean, they're just a region. But when you're talking about United States, China, India, these would be like UP is a huge country. Okay, mm-hmm. it's got it's got more people than power. It's got the same amount of pe- number of people now as um. Pakistan. Pakistan's birth rate high, so I think I have, you know, but, um, you know, but it's like, it's Pakistan. UP and Pakistan are comparable. And so you compare those two. Maybe UP is doing badly. Maybe it's doing well. But my point is you got to look at the regional variation in India when you compare it to Bangladesh and Pakistan. Okay. Because maybe they could get hit later, or maybe they got hit by something similar. Um, in particular, Pakistan. I've heard the same thing from Pakistani friends, by the way, um, that it, it came and then it went. Um, there's some evidence. We have some good data from New York City now. Uh, some Orthodox Jewish areas have antibody um, positive rates of 50%. And so what looks like happened there is, um, so I believe if I had to bet, I don't think herd immunity is 60 or 70%. I think it's a little lower. Um, Interesting. Um, mostly because uh, the 60 to 70% assumes certain parameters of like who's spreading and how it's spreading and that everyone's at equal risk. And basically, if there's variation of who's spreading, then the herd immunity drops. I mean, it's just the way the math works. And so some people are claiming herd immunity is going to be 20% because of the way it spreads. Um, Also, resistance due to other viral infections that aren't showing up in in the antibody responses. And also social distancing, like changing norms. Like, I don't shake hands. You know, I'm always wearing masks if I see people at my door, these sorts of things. So I don't know if it would be 20%, probably not. But if you see like rates that are 50%, that might be what's called overshooting, where it spreads so fast within the population, it'll overshoot over the herd, right? So um, that's a reason to be optimistic about what we're seeing, um, you know, in, in the proportions. And in the United States, it's the exact same thing as it's like the more wealthy areas of New York City have much lower antibody response. So that's where people could social distance and they did social distance, right? So if you think herd immunity is 40%, it's horrible to get this. But once you get to 40%, 30%, I don't know, maybe 50%, it's going to fade away. And you know, to be selfish, if you didn't get it, that's probably good. If you did get it and you recover, I do think that it's not going to be horrible for most people. There are some stories about infertility and brain damage. This stuff happens in bad diseases to people. It doesn't mean it happens to everybody. Uh, my goal is not to get it, uh, mostly because I don't want my family members to get it, because we have old people, etc. There's reasons if you cannot get it, don't get it. On the other hand, there are lots of people who have had it now, and they've recovered, and there's extremely high confidence that they're going to be immune for at least three months. Probably they'll be immune to some extent longer. When they say that um, the antibodies fade after three months, this is actually... Um, from what I've heard, 
it, it's not, it doesn't fall like a cliff. It generally fades. So that means that people are going to be considerably more resistant than, than they were as naive when it initially spread. Now, I think your bigger question, why we're on this call, can human civilization take these shocks? Okay. Um, I think one of the issues that's going to be good about the COVID-19 response and lack of response is there's a lot of different responses that show what worked, what didn't work. Um, it showed the lack of preparations, the lack of coordination. There were multiple scares over the last 20 years mm -hmm. that people didn't, they either responded to and nothing happened. So H1N1 wasn't that big of a deal. Um, SARS didn't spread very much, which is actually related to COVID-19. MERS didn't spread very much, et cetera. And so people got very complacent. Um, and I don't think they're going to be complacent. I think there's going to be a lot of money spent on public health. There's a lot of consciousness going on. I think some practices are going to change forever. Um, I, I have a really hard time seeing myself ever shaking hands. I don't see why you need to shake hands. Uh, you, you can nod. You can bow. You can do other things to do the exact same thing. So why do you need to touch someone's hand? You don't know where that hand's been, you know? So I think I, I don't think I'm ever going to shake hands again. Um, I think there are certain practices that are going to change. I think a lot of business travel is going to get reduced and people are going to do more Zoom. But I mean, slowly life will go back to normal. We'll just adjust. That's probably the adjusted behavior will probably help us some. And then the other aspect is going to be the fact that we do need an infrastructure or pharmaceutical rapid response that we don't have right now. OK, um, I think. Uh, China, India, United States, some big country needs to just take on that burden, mostly for themselves, but the spillover effect is going to affect impact everybody if you can scale up. Because um, there are issues with economies of scale from what I've heard and read uh, from people just because we haven't taken infectious disease seriously for decades, like after smallpox, you know, really disappeared. Uh, we've kind of been complacent because we've been able to be complacent. And I think um, that will change a lot of lifestyles. Now, I know people say, oh, this is going to end cities and all that stuff. I don't know. Um, East Asian cities have done OK. So it seems like certain cities do OK based on like certain responses. You know, I know in the United States, a lot of people, are, I mean, I, I do avoid cities now more than I used to. But um, the United States has had a really bad response, really uncoordinated response. And so um, and combined with Black Lives Matter protests and riots, I mean, there's just reasons to avoid cities that don't have to do with COVID-19. Yeah, but something very interesting pops out when you mention New York City, because I see the same story in Mumbai and New York. I think it's pretty much similar where the slums where it was just impossible for socially distancing from one another. I mean, you just have seven or eight people living in one house. Even if you lock them down, it's not like they can socially distance, right? Yeah. Also, a lot of them were essential service workers. Yeah, and uh, so that so the slums were completely ravaged, and it's very interesting that Dharavi now just does not have any cases, hardly any deaths or cases now come yeah, from I mean, Dharavi. If, if your antibody, if your antibody rate is that high, you are at herd immunity. You know, like even assuming, even assuming that there's not immunity in people that don't have antibody response because they didn't, you know, catch it, which I think there is, there is immunity in some people, even if they didn't catch COVID-19, um, you're basically at herd immunity. If it's like, it's the 60%, you said, 
Yeah, 57%. Yeah. So, I mean, that's unheard immunity. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's some people who are saying, well, ev you know, everyone's going to eventually, herd immunity is what's going to happen. Everyone's going to get there. But, you know, we did flatten the curve in, in a lot of areas. So I wouldn't be entirely surprised if the next couple of years, if we do develop a vaccine. And so herd immunity is going to happen in some places, but in other places, they're going to do vaccination. So I've heard... I can't confirm this, but a friend of mine told me this. This has not been widely reported, but you can find it on the internet, supposedly, that the Russian government and the Chinese government have used uh, experimental vaccines on their officials. On the army. Was it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and also on their government high officials, you know? And so we'll know if those vaccines <laughs> work or not soon enough, you know? So um, I think we might have a vaccine earlier than we were thinking. I don't know. I'm not 100% guaranteed, but, um, you know, I don't think everyone's going to hit herd immunity. I mean, some places in East Asia have been so good at suppressing, like Taiwan, it's an island. Uh, they're just going to wait on the vaccine or they're going to wait for coronavirus to just die off. Uh, because if enough places do get herd immunity, all the reservoirs will disappear. Uh, but that's going to be a really long time. So I think a vaccination um, is within the two years is probably likely there are people including friends i know who's, who are like this is just going to be way harder than two years like there's no guarantee but i think the difference is everyone's focusing on this everyone's going to put resources into it and they're going to explore a lot of different opportunities and russia and china are doing things that frankly are not going to be ethical in the west so i think i think it's likely that something will be developed that will give enough immunity to abolish it um as far as like something that breaks out that's that's more deadly. Honestly, coronavirus is one of those weird things that's kind of in between where it's almost worse that it's not as deadly as, as all that for a lot of people. So it's 40% asymptomatic. That's how it spreads. So, so SARS, the original SARS was not nearly as asymptomatic. And so it spreads a lot less because people get sick. They go to the hospital and they don't spread it. Coronavirus looks to be at least it could be more, but it looks to be at least 40% asymptomatic, which means you don't even know you have it. And that's mm. how it spreads, right? So it hit this really, really sweet spot of being bad for a minority of people to the point where you need to shut things down. But for the majority that it spreads within, they don't know that they're spreading it. So until we get the capability to test everyone, which you know, in the next 10 years, I think will be possible as we get better and better, with these testing regimes because i think as you know in business um the more you do something the more efficient things get um the steps in the supply chain get more and more efficient the technology gets better as there is a demand you know there's, there's the prices start to go down i think um things like rapid and widespread testing will become much more ubiquitous over the last te next 10 years uh not because we're necessarily going to have another COVID 19 we might not but I think a country like China, I, I don't think I don't think they want to ever deal with this again. And I think the way they're going to deal with it is they're just going to allocate a certain amount of the GDP uh, of the taxes they get to foolproofing themselves against a tail risk. Because this is what it is. It's a tail risk. It's unlikely to happen in any given year. It's unlikely to probably happen in a decade. But it will happen at some point at which in which case you'll recoup whatever, you know, year-to-year -year expenses you have by the fact that you can rapidly respond and shut it down so your economy just continues 
because right now we've shut down a lot of the world economy for most of the year now. Yeah, so I'm, and, I'm trying and, to be I'm trying to be optimistic here, um, but I actually don't think I'm being crazy. Yeah, I so think something, our, our response is worse than I was expecting, unfortunately, especially in America. Yeah, so something very interesting that I just came across. There was this study about antibodies. Uh, I think it's in the process of being peer reviewed. Uh, it was about something to do with a fishery vessel outbreak. So these people were tested and uh, out of his three people had antibodies from before and all of them went on a ship and 85% or something got the uh, got the virus. Uh, I'm just going to share it on the screen for the people. Just the, this is uh, the study I'm talking about. And what was interesting is that the ones who had the antibodies, they did not get reinfected. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you know about this study. So this was the study. I don't know about that, the specific study, but yeah. Yeah, I just came across it like today and I was like, okay, this is interesting. So this was a good sign uh, in yeah. a way that, yeah. No, I so mean, I, I would say I'm highly confident that people that get coronavirus and have antibodies or have antibodies for something related are in good shape. They're not going to get reinfected. There probably is somebody that will get reinfected somewhere, maybe more than one person. You know, there's always going to be exceptions. But on the whole, infection will protect you. You will have an antibody response. So I, I that's I'm very confident of. There are people that say, well, we can't guarantee you're not going to get reinfected. But most of the cases of reinfection have been errors in the data. Where it's like there was a false antibody, you know, like they actually didn't get coronavirus, et cetera. So um, that I'm confident about. Um, I think I think we're in good shape there. Uh, I think the key here is um, there's not going to be a silver bullet. Uh, a vaccine would be a silver bullet, but even with a vaccine, that only protects us against COVID-19. There's going to be different things in the future that we're not going to have a vaccine for. We'll probably be able to develop it faster because we're going to get better through this process. But um, I think we need to figure out a way to use the information technology that we have to do legitimate test and trace outside of South Korea. So there's places like South Korea that have it. Why can't, I mean, I understand India is a developing country, but people have cell phones, you know? People have cell phones. Um, if there's a cheap spit kit that could be distributed, I do think that it's possible within the next 10 years. Like if Elon Musk can send people to Mars or the moon and all these things, just as one, are to it and so i think in the short term we got some problems some serious problems but in the long term i think we can adapt i think we can adapt but adaptation requires changes and changes can be hard uh you know in evolution how adaptation occurs is you know individuals die or they don't reproduce so that's harsh right but it does happen um no I, not too many people are dying now but our economy is really really changing and adapting so I have been, well, I haven't been inside a supermarket since February. Whoa. Uh, we've done delivery the whole time. I, I, I've been, we've done delivery or pickup. So people, so the people drop it outside and we pick up, but we have a really great delivery service that we got. We, we actually subscribed um, in, on February 1st because we started getting worried about coronavirus. And so they, they've like kept us, even though they got overwhelmed with demand, like, like on March 31st, they said, we're not going to give you any referral fees anymore because we can't take any more people. 
But um, in any case, so our service is good. There's plenty of services out there. So we've adapted. We've been able to, I work from home. Um, my wife is stay at home. You know, as long as enough people don't go out there and spread it, that will help. There are people who are essential that have to be out there. A lot of them are getting it. Um, you know, I have a friend who got it. He lives in a condominium. He thinks it has something to do with the hallway because um, the family downstairs all had coronavirus. The, the father works as doctor. He got it at the hospital. So, you know, some people are going to get it. I mean, that's a fact. Uh, you know, I think the lockdowns have taught us that, frankly, we, we're not going to be able to do it again. We probably aren't going to. We probably aren't going to do lockdowns with something like coronavirus the next time. The only thing that I think is feasible is robust test and trace and also quarantine in place. The thing that we didn't do in the United States, I don't know if you did in India, is quarantine hotels. We didn't do very much of that at all. We didn't those, do that in India. Yeah. And those seem to have worked really well in East Asia um, to just like put people that have coronavirus, isolate them. And don't let them self-isolate. Because the problem with self-isolation is a lot of people don't do it. Yeah. There's just been way too many cases we know about. And if there's way too many cases you know about, there's a lot of cases you don't know about. You know? Yeah. And a lot of it is with young people is you're asking them to make a sacrifice for other people. And a lot of them are not going to do it. Because they know that they're at low risk. Last I checked, the flu is more dangerous for you than coronavirus if you're under the age of 25. Well... So you're yeah. asking people not to party, not to, not to, like they're 18, they're 20, you know, you're asking them to self-isolate for six months. So some, you know, old people or people with immune compromise uh, will not get sick and die, even though it's at lower risk for you than the flu, right? You're asking people to make a sacrifice and a lot of people are not going to do that. So we need to figure out an alternative. So something like, um, you know, quarantine hotels, maybe make them fun. I don't know. They all have coronavirus, so they can't spread it to each other. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. We need to like be creative and find solutions. But yeah, I don't think a lockdown is going to happen again. I don't think we're going to do a lockdown in a lot of these countries because it, it we showed that we couldn't do it initially. Some countries it worked, right? Like Italy has kind of made it work. They're having to do a semi lockdown again. But they got normalcy for a while. I don't know how normal things are in Mumbai. Like, is it polluted again? It's, yeah. I don't know. I've not been to my, uh, you know, rooftop. I, I've not been to my terrace. So I, I can't tell you whether it's polluted or not because I just basically hop onto the car. I've literally taken baby steps in starting my work. And let me tell you, it's, uh, this government has been a disaster. I mean, this is what lockdowns are in India. So I'll just... <laughs> I'll just give you how Indian policymakers behave, right? So now in India, we have this great idea yeah. that we will have a COVID lockdown on a weekend. So Saturday, Sundays, we are going to lockdown as if, you know, suddenly on a Saturday, coronavirus becomes active and he's like, okay, I'm going to come and get you all. I'm going to come and get you all. So for the first five days of the week, everything is open. Suddenly on a Saturday, Sunday, you guys shut it down. It makes no sense. In Mumbai, to, I mean, what do I say? Three days ago, we basically opened up all uh, intrastate uh, bus travels with some social distancing. Uh, you know how it is in India. Yeah. It's not going to be followed. So, yeah. but guess what is illegal and it has been, uh, people are being bullied to do. You can't have four people in the car. Hmm. The cops will catch you. It, it's it's a total disaster, yeah. Razib. Yeah. We have 
and uh, i mean people look at my twitter avatar and say oh kushal has become a uh, anti covid denier i'm not a covid denier all i'm saying is if i see more people dying because of the economic lockdown than covid itself i'm going to change my mind where the data goes i mean yeah, if yeah. i'm going to i'm going to listen to stories after stories after and by the way the government of india zrasip has stopped sharing the suicide data in india this year as of now we're recording this just for the yeah. record because i'm going to be releasing this in september but we're yeah. recording this on the 22nd of august the government of india has stopped declaring suicide cases in india because they have hit the roof yeah imagine yeah. rajiv i've never heard of suicides in my life yeah. and in my own circle i've heard from people of 10 actual suicides yeah just randomly people hanging themselves because yeah, they yeah. lost so much money Well, so I mean, one thing I'll say is even in the United States, surveys have shown young people, like something like thirty percent of young people have committed, have thought of thought of suicide in the last six months. So I think part of it is I already told you the flu is more dangerous for young people than COVID nineteen. I do think there is a hysteria, there is a panic, there is a scaremongering, and it really bothers me because there are people who should be scared and there are people who should not be scared. And so what the media in the United States does is show someone who's twenty five who dies of coronavirus. Yeah. That's very very rare. Okay? The children should not be scared. Um it's old people who sh- I you know, I don't know. I'm very straightforward about you should follow the facts and not engage in propaganda wars, but I think what they're trying to do is engage in a propaganda war that everybody is at risk. And that's the only way that you can prevent people from spreading this. The problem though is when you lie to people, they don't trust you. They can look up the data themselves. I in the United States public health officials have had a loss of trust for a variety of reasons like the, the masking stuff in the in the spring where they said don't mask and then later um frankly just like the green light that they gave to like massive black lives matter protests for ideological reasons a lot of people just don't listen to public health officials anymore because they're so politicized and I know they're trying to do their best but nobody cares nobody listens and you know it's it's just we're in a difficult place right now and the media is trying to promote all these scare stories and i i think what like this is me because i'm naive promote in thing that's that's where the danger but like people want to talk about young people dying even though they're not at risk what they're at risk of is of spreading it not of dying it just tell people the truth like yes maybe they'll make the wrong choice i don't know but like you need to start with the truth until you start with the truth you're never get anywhere i mean that's just my belief yes you can like lie to people and propaganda your way through something you know you can fake it for a little while but you can't fake it for a while so i think people have to be honest uh, about what we're facing what we can do about it and um you know like if if the old people have to die like be honest about that i mean i don't agree with that i still think that we can do things in a targeted way and i think a lot of what we can do is people like me who can isolate should if 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 some people take on the role of i'm going to self quarantine that reduces the number of potential nodes in the chain of spread all we need to do is get it to one or below so truckers all these people they need to do essential things do their thing you know people that are starving because they can't support themselves they need to work too uh those of us who don't have to do that don't do that i don't know i mean there's when i see things of retired people 
golfing and doing other things. You're retired. You don't need to leave the house. Just have deliveries, you know? Like, stop golfing. Stop going. I mean, going outside is actually not that dangerous, but I'm trying to say socializing in general. If you don't have to do this sort of stuff for your livelihood, don't. Uh, that will help a lot. But I mean, we need like kind of social cohesion, a level of understanding that I, I, here in the United States, we don't have, um, you know, this is a lot of this is not a science problem. It's a sociological problem, you know? Yeah, I, I hear you. But then in a country like India, where honestly, I have not seen this kind of economic shock since I've grown up <laughs> and I've been a businessman. I mean, it's going to destroy so many lives that beyond a point, let's let's say if you're a restaurant owner and, you know, yeah. in the state yeah. of Maharashtra, restaurants, restaurants are not allowed to open up. Gyms are not allowed to open up. Uh, malls are allowed to open up, but the food courts in the malls are not allowed to open up. So, I mean, I have, a, I have a question, though. You guys don't allow the restaurants to like have like outside service. Nothing. Only takeaway. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Okay. It doesn't. Because, That's because, how it is. Because here in the United States, there's a problem where people are scared because in the, the northern part of the country, you can't do outside seating, you know? But in India, that's not, unless it's raining, you know, that's a problem. But, you know, in winter, it's going to be good. You know, you could just do outside seating. It's dry. The temperature is not even that high. So um, I don't, it seems like a lot, it's not just India, a lot of places uh people bureaucrats officials they're doing things that are symbolic that make it seem like they're doing something but it's a lot like security theater at american airports it's just to reassure people that they're doing something it's not to actually do it's not to actually do something the problem with security the security theater analogy is there aren't really that many terrorists who are going to airports anymore because they already did that 20 years ago um they do other things now you know uh, terrorists just move on so security theater doesn't have that much of an impact aside from being just stupid and time-wasting. The problem with, with COVID theater is COVID is still there. Like that's the huge difference between COVID and a lot of the rest of our politics in this country. It's not just symbolic. It's not just cultural. It's not just about words and values. It's something physical that's real out there. And so when people criticize you know, others for, uh, you know, like for example, there have been no documented super spreader events in the United States outside so I, I still think the protests look bad and there's probably been some spread but it's probably not been a major factor the major factors is bars um restaurants inside where people just come together and they breathe the same air over and over again right so no super spreader to that side means that you could go outside and do a lot of things outside in the united states the limitation on that is it gets cold in winter but obviously in india the limitation is the, is the rain but, you know, you could put up umbrellas, tarps, other things. Um, I feel like in warm countries, you can figure out ways to do things outside, you know? And so that's the best adaptation. Now, you have a factory. That's not as feasible to do outside, you know? But um, there are probably ways where you could ventilate differently. Um, probably, I mean, that's the issue, the ventilation. Also, um, N N95 masks. Uh, just more intensive masking is a way that I can see adaptations occurring. Now, you as a business person um, or just business people in general, to take on these capital investments themselves, that's difficult. And this is where, you know, government loans and subsidies should come in because factories need to continue running. 
they're doing a public good running, giving people jobs. They shouldn't have to take on all of the retrofitting and adaptation themselves because there's positive externalities. There's spillover effects from having a factory, producing goods and services, providing incomes. And so that the government should take on debt or whatever it has to do to make the factories reopen. I mean, that's what we're going to have to do in the United States. I think it's what we're going to have to do in a lot of parts of the world um, until there's a vaccine or until we get herd immunity. I personally feel in India, it's going to be herd immunity. And what the the funny part is, it's not like restaurants are not allowed to open anywhere else in India. It's only in this great state of Maharashtra, they have decided that they can't open. It's yeah. just, look, in India, the policy making is not because we have to show to the people we are doing something. It is yeah. a two-pronged process. It's not, it's not just we have to show to the people we're doing something. Also, we have to find ways how to do corruption. In India, yeah. every policy is built not with the yeah, main prerogative in mind that we have to do public good. The main yeah. prerogative in mind usually is how do I make money? How yeah. do I make money by bribing people? And I know <laughs> I just heard a story and you're going to laugh your ass off. I mean, I don't have any evidence, but it's just a story. I can say the story. I'm not going to take names. Somebody lands in an airport in India, not in Maharashtra, somewhere else. And they're like, look, I have a COVID negative test. I yeah. have been tested negative for COVID. I have literally landed here. Yeah. Like, you'll have to quarantine for some 14, 15 days. He said, I don't want to quarantine, man. He said, okay, give me 8,000 rupees. <laughs> and you don't yeah. have to quarantine. Yeah. What the hell? What's the point of this? My whole point is that in countries yeah. like India, what scares me is that what our policymakers don't realize, and this is my assessment that India does not even spend 3% of its GDP on uh, mm -hmm. the overall health infrastructure. And... Yeah. The one thing that has been exposed in India, I mean, kudos to the Indian doctors. I think Indian doctors are fantastic. And the way they have dealt with a, a pandemic situation like yeah. COVID, it's just, I, I don't think so. Any country could have handled it the way India did. Indian doctors are just out of this world. I mean, the way they handle things, they manage things, it's unbelievable. And I, and I, I'm very hopeful. I think we, we already have uh, one, one vaccine in India is already in phase three and, yeah. uh, and obviously, the Oxford vaccine is also there in phase three. I don't know. Maybe that is the Oxford vaccine. But yeah. Uh, so in my view, I don't see uh, policymakers changing much. And I think in a country like India, we'll have to go for herd immunity. So before we wrap things up, I just, I, I just wanted to ask you one last question. Do you think we will actually learn something tangible from this process or as soon as we get the vaccine we're going to go back to square one yeah um i hope we will um you can't account i mean i can't predict the future so you know traditionally people have just forgotten after disasters i think this is i mean in various ways i think this is the biggest disasters since world war ii um, you know, I mean, Great Leap Forward was localized to China. There are things you can say, but worldwide, I mean, we haven't had an economic downturn like this, even though it's somewhat different since the Great Depression here in the United States. I think it's the same in India, okay? The numbers don't lie. Yes, the body count has not been, you know, what it was in 1957, but that was a different time. The way people reacted, the economic impact has been so great. I have a hard time believing that we're just going to forget it. I, I was hoping that it was going to be much milder in March. Even though I was alarmed, I was like, let's just react intensely. 
and have fewer than 100,000 deaths. We're at well over 200 in the United States. Our official count like 175,000, but that's fake. Um, we know it's over 200,000 due to undercounts, right? So we're probably going to hit 300,000. That's a third of a million people dying, mostly old, you know? Uh, it's horrible. And so that's that's the you know mortality impact. A lot of people have had really bad instances of COVID. Um, some people are going to have problems the rest of their life, probably more than 300,000, um, considerably more. So it's like people are maimed. Um, this is like a war. The economic impact has been atrocious, as you know, in India, as everywhere people know. No one, no one has been let off free. Even Taiwan has been, had problems because the rest of the world's economy shut down. Okay. So I hope people will learn from this because this has been horrible. If they don't learn, we're probably going to have an even more horrible outbreak at some point, you know, in our lifetimes, we're not that old, you know, we're going to be around for decades, the two of us, hopefully, um, something will probably happen. So, I mean, I've talked to some people who say like, you know, our gap between really bad, because the last bad pandemic was 67. There was one in like 57 or 58 that was worse than COVID, I think, in terms of mortality, but not that much worse. The 67 one wasn't as bad, but it was pretty bad. So that was a long time between pandemics. We've traditionally had pandemics a little bit closer together, I think. And so we should probably expect one in the next couple of decades. And we need to be prepared. Um, we've all lived through this. You know, my children, um, you know, they yell at people who come too near and they yell coronavirus, you know? Like this is just part of the lives of a lot of people right now. So I hope that those of us who lived through this can just keep beating preparedness because we just want to live a normal life. We want to go back to normal. And then when something comes up, nip it in the bud, right? That's the goal because we all reacted way too slow. Like we reacted, like the whole world reacted, you know, a month too slow, to be honest. There were people who were being alarmist in late January. And I remember hoping they were wrong. They were right. Now, a lot of times alarmists turn out to be wrong. So it's not totally you know, fair to criticize everyone. But I think definitely by the time when, when Trump was in India, I thought that was a true because it was already in Iran. Once it got out of China, we knew, it, we knew that this wasn't a China thing. You know, because you could just say, oh, there's special conditions in China. We don't know, you know. But once it was in Iran and people were dying, including government officials, and Trump was still in India, I thought that was horrible. Like, he needed to fly back to the United States and act then. He waited a month, basically. Yeah, he waited a month. And you know how these exponential curves work. You know, um, I think we still would have had a problem. But I think some of the massive outbreaks, New York City wouldn't have been nearly as bad. Um, I think we would, we would be doing a lot better if he had acted when Iran broke out. I think he would have been able to do it. I think if he did it in early February, a lot of people would say, oh, this is overreacting. And, he, and if there wasn't a problem, people would say you overreacted. But if he had acted by, the end, by the, you know, February 17th, February 20th, when Iran was breaking out, I think that would have made a big difference. Um, I think India waited a little too long, although, you know, obviously lockdown was, was difficult. It was tough. So who can say? We have the evidence now of what we need to do, of what worked, um, you know, test and trace, um, quarantine, also shut down national borders um, that worked for Taiwan. I think, you know, some of the globalized people that were saying, oh, that just doesn't work. You can't do that. 
that's sinophobic. You know, people said that in the United States, you know, Vox said that at the end of January, you know, no, this is usually to shut down the borders and contain. I think lockdowns, what I would say is lockdowns don't work too well. They cause horrible side effects. So what we need to focus on is test, trace, and contain those three things. That's what's worked in East Asia, but that needs an in, that needs government and IT infrastructure that's ready for that. None of that is ready. We were not ready. South Korea was ready because they got paranoid due to MERS, SARS, and H1N1 in the 2000s. They'd had some issues. So maybe now we're going to be ready, the whole world, you know? So, I mean, that's my optimistic take. Um, this is horrible, but, you know, we, we all, all we can do is learn. All we can do is learn. And if we don't learn, then it's on us. It's not on the virus. It's on us. We deserve it. I agree with you. I think uh, for me, the one thing I'm sure about in a country like India, and uh, we'll wrap things up now, but uh, here are my closing comments. So in a country like India, I don't think so. A lockdown can ever work. So what India needs to work on is one, gigantically increase its uh, bed capacity. Two, India needs to come up with a system where it can protect. Uh, I think this time India had very few deaths. I don't buy the official figure of what, 53,000 deaths right now. I yeah. believe it's double of that. At least 100,000 100, deaths have happened yeah. in India. I yeah. mean, it, it, it's a combination of multiple factors. I mean, we don't need to revisit. It's the innate immunity, BCG, yeah. and multiple things that, that are there in India. And... Uh, uh, I think India needs to figure out only one thing because even though the average age of India is 27 years age uh, of uh, 27, well, we still have a huge chunk of old people in India, right? At high so, risk. And, and they don't deserve to die. So what India needs to come up probably is, uh, you know, facilities during a time of a pandemic that if you cannot isolate old people without shutting down the economy, you move the old people to a secure area. It's like, you know, a bubble where, you know, everybody is tested immediately put in a bubble and the senior citizens are there in the bubble and the rest of the economy is running. And yeah. once the, the virus runs through the young people and they develop herd immunity, yes, a few young people will die, but I think young people need to make that sacrifice uh, for the nation, for the economy and the old people. So yeah, I, I agree with you, man. Uh, so, so I guess we'll wrap things up now. So once again, Razib, Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. So and, uh, anything else coming up uh, other than Brown Pundits uh, and the Insight Podcast? No, I just got the Insight Podcast. Um, and then, um, you know, the Brown Pundits Browncast. You guys check it out. I got my blogs, Gene Expression, GeneXP.com, um, which I do mostly genetics and history, brownpundits.com, uh, where I do mostly, you know, brown stuff, but not always brown stuff, but mostly brown stuff. Also, I got two reviews that are going to come out in National Review. Um, I think uh, Matt Iglesias' new, new book, uh, Billion Americans. And I will have a review of Joe Henrik's new book, um, The Weirdest People in the World, like Why the West is Uniquely Prosperous. A lot of Indians will be interested. Um, it has to do with lack of family values. Um, so uh, I think, uh, you know, I'll be out there. Subscribe to my RSS. Go to Receive.com. All right. Uh, all right, guys, uh, uh, you know the drill. Subscribe to the podcast, like, share the video. If you like what I'm doing over here, please support me on YouTube. You can become a member of the program. If you like what I'm doing, you can go and join Patreon. You know, on Saturdays, we discuss religionists. And on Sundays, we're right now discussing Aryan invasion, Aryan migration, and out-of-India theory. Uh, until then, I'll see you next time. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.